title for the sermon today is When Your World Falls Apart. And I think this title, what I, when I think about when your world falls apart is that, man, when just like the reality of life hits you and things get hard, it's often in those moments that we turn our gaze from what's going on around us and, and search for God in some way. There's one moment in my life where I'd say my world fell apart. I was 16, started dating my first girlfriend. And this was a really big deal for me because up until this point, I'd been really socially awkward, partially chubby, and I tried way too hard to get girls' attention. And so the fact that a girl would actually start dating me was mind-blowing. And, and I hate to admit this, but in some of the ways in which I tried to get girls, I was really, really pathetic. Um, I had a younger brother with Down syndrome. I do have a younger brother with Down syndrome. And he actually, because he's really cute and I'm not, um, he became my means for engaging in conversation with girls. And so my mom would pull up when I was in junior high and be like, hey, girls, come check out my younger brother. He's really cool. I'm pretty cool, too. Runs in the family. Want to talk? No? All right, sweet. Well, see you later. So I, would, I became actually known for using him as a means to try and get girls. Our yearbook uh, for eighth graders, they would give them a superlative of most likely to, and mine was most likely to use his youngest brother as a chick magnet. So um, it's sad. It's pathetic. I know I'm a, I'm a sad person. I know. So he got more girls than I did. Um, but... Uh, once I got a girlfriend, man, I was on top of the world. I mean, this was mind-blowing, life-altering, right? Like, she made me apple strudel once. Bam, I was ready to close the deal. Like, this is it. I'm ready to marry her. So one day I get a phone call. She's like, hey, can we talk? I was like, of course we can talk. I'm your boyfriend. You're my girlfriend. That's what we do. We talk. And so I'm like, hey, mom, uh, I'm going to Starbucks. Going to meet with my girlfriend. We're going to talk. My mom goes, is everything okay? Mom, you're so dumb. Just because a girl wants to talk doesn't mean there's something wrong. And that is not true. Every time a girl wants to talk, there's something wrong. Women, I'm figuring out you've got a secret language, and I don't know it yet, but that's one of my key words. In fact, I was dating another girl another time, and she called me. She's like, hey, can we talk? And just jokingly, I was like, only reason you want to talk is you want to break up with me. She was just silent. I was like, all right, well, we're breaking up. Let's do this. So anyway, of course, I, I go to Starbucks, and she breaks up with me. Like, my heart was broken. I mean, we dated for a month, so this was serious stuff. <laughs> and uh, and I, I leave Starbucks. I'm, like, seeing the world through a cloud. I can't walk straight. I call my friend. I'm like, man, she broke up with me. And then I got over it, so I was fine. Um, but anyway, uh, when... For many of us, this is a really silly example and really stupid, but um, we all have moments when our world falls apart. And for many of us, it may just very be a broken relationship. For some of us, it could have been the death of a close loved one or um, getting a call from the doctor saying, hey, we need to do more tests. We think it could be cancer. Or seeing someone so close to you go through something so incredibly hard and knowing there's nothing you can do to help them. We all have and all will have moments in our life when it seems like our world is falling apart. And so today we're going to look at Lamentations 3. Um, if you have your Bible, open it up to Lamentations 3. It's between Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. If you don't have it, it's in your notes outline, so I got it there for you. And Lamentations is this book of poems or laments over the fall of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah wrote these poems 
in light of seeing Jerusalem crumble to the ground at Babylon's hands. And to understand the importance of this book within the Old Testament, we need to know the importance of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the temple city for the Israelites, and in many ways it was the center point of their theology. It was a sign that they were God's people. It was a symbol of God's presence with them. And there's many Old Testament texts that speak about how God would one day come down and dwell within Israel and rule the world from Jerusalem. And so from, in many ways, their theology centered on Jerusalem. And so when Babylon came and destroyed the walls and exiled a large number of Israelites to Babylon, in many ways, their faith and their world came crashing down. And so if you'll read with me in Lamentations 3, we'll start in verse 1 and go from there. I am one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. And this first verse just sets the stage for what's about to be said. Verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He led me off my way and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a mark for his arrow. He shot into my vitals the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all my people, the object of their taunt songs all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Man, this is really depressing. And we really see the pain and the anguish that Jeremiah is experiencing over the fall of Jerusalem. And I think we need to point out one thing because that first verse where he says, I am one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. And in many ways, I think at times we really wrestle with how does the sovereignty of God and the suffering that we experience, how do those coalesce? How do they align? Are Do they work together? And Jeremiah actually doesn't even question if what's happening is just or not. He he, he knows why they're being punished. It's not like God's just punishing them for fun. In verse 39, it says, Why should any who draw breath complain about the punishment of their sins? So Jeremiah knows that the affliction that they're experiencing is a result of the sin that they've committed. That in turning from God and pursuing other idols and other gods, they have warranted this experience. Which leads him to say in verse 18, So I say, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall, which are are bitter things. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. Now, if we just ended at this point, it would be really depressing. But Jeremiah turns from the pain that he's experiencing, and he turns to God. Look at verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies 
never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So in many ways, Jeremiah turns from what he's experiencing and turns toward God and speaks to himself, to the people of Israel and to Jerusalem itself and says, I know that we are in the midst of a hard thing right now, that this trial seems like our world has come to an end, but you must know that the mercies of God never end, that though this seems too much for us, God is bigger than this. And I really love verse 18 compared to verse 24. In 18, in the midst of his despair, he says, Gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. But then he goes on to say, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. And so in many ways, Jeremiah had set his hope upon Jerusalem as if this was the means by which God would save them as if this was the place through which God would do all of his redemptive work. And when Jerusalem came crashing down, so in many sense did his theology and his, and his world, and he had no idea how to cope, and he realized that Jerusalem was not his hope, that the Lord was his hope. In many ways, I think about dancers. My wife did dancing uh, growing up, and dancers, when they spin, this has always amazed me, that they can spin so many times without getting dizzy. And I've tried it, and I always get dizzy. And, and the reason they can do that is they fix, they, it's called spotting. And they find a point, and they fixate their gaze on it. So as they spin, they whip their head back around, and they keep their eyes fixated on it. And I can't, because I'm getting dizzy right now. But when they do that, it prevents them from getting dizzy. And so in many ways, Jeremiah, in setting his hope on Jerusalem, chose a spot that was movable, that would fall short, that wouldn't sustain And so he learned from this experience to turn from Jerusalem and turn towards the Lord as his portion and to set his gaze solely on him. And in many ways, the short application for us is to ask ourselves, are we setting our hopes upon anything other than God? Are we turning our attention and setting our hearts on something other than God? Because truth be told, if we do that, it's not going to sustain. It's not going to be a hope that lasts. And as I've been wrestling with the Lord and just journeying with him, one of the things that he's been doing is continually drawing me back to Jesus. And as we read this text, in many ways, between Jeremiah and us stands Jesus. And to fully understand this text, we have to read it through the lens, I think, of Jesus. And so as I was reading this, I realized in many ways, we are not the afflicted one. Jesus is the afflicted one. So before we get there, though, we got to wrestle with God's wrath. And this is something we don't talk about a lot, although it's essential to understand the character of God. Because truth be told, the wrath of God is a really good thing. Because his wrath is against all that is wrong, all that is evil, all that is sinful. And so his wrath against what is evil means that he is right. He is just. He is good. He is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. And in many ways, we rejoice in some ways in the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God means that one day he will make all things right. He will restore this broken world. He will do away with all of the sin. He will make what is broken new. But it gets really personal when we realize that God's wrath against sin 
isn't just the sin out there, but also the sin that we've committed and that we ourselves have wronged God and so that we have warranted God's wrath and we deserve death. But God never lets the story end there. And so in the person of Jesus, God takes on flesh, lives a perfect life, sinless life, and goes to the cross as an innocent man and takes upon himself the wrath that you and I deserve. He takes our sins upon himself and the punishment of those sins, which is separation from God, experiences that fully so that we do not experience wrath or punishment. And that we actually enter into the favor of God. So if you turn yourself over to Jesus in faith and repentance, you are no longer under the wrath of God. You are in the favor of God. There's this word in the New Testament. It's propitiation. It's really fun to say, propitiation. And, and this word, what this means is it, a propitiation is one uh, who, or something or someone who appeases, consumes, or removes wrath. And so Jesus is actually described as a propitiation. This is Romans 3.25. It says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So in Jesus' death, the wrath of God that should be poured out on me is poured out on Jesus, and he consumes it fully and satisfies the wrath of God. But not only does Jesus' death do away with the penalty of sin, but in his resurrection, he removes the power of sin. So that as he conquers the grave, he reminds us that death never has the last word, that God always writes a new story. And so in Jesus the penalty of sin is removed and the power of sin and death is done away with. And so we don't get what we deserve, which is death. And we do get what we don't deserve, which is the continual favor, love, power over sin and death. The Holy Spirit poured into our lives. In many ways, this is so important. So as we understand this, we need to go back to Lamentations and read Jesus into this text as the afflicted one. And when we do that, it changes a lot of how we understand this passage. Verse 3. We'll just do a few verses with Jesus as the afflicted one. He is the one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He was driven and brought into darkness without any light. Against him alone, God turned his hand again and again all day long. His flesh and his skin was made to waste away, and his bones were broken. He was besieged and enveloped with bitterness and tribulation. He was made to sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. This leads us, as we see Jesus taking the affliction and the wrath that we deserved, to, to cry out, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. If we had read this text 
as Jeremiah did and through his perspective, we may have been led to think that the punishment or the things that we experience in life when our world falls apart is happening because God is punishing us. But when we see Jesus as the afflicted one, that he was punished on our behalf so that we do not experience any punishment. So when your world falls apart, if you are in Christ, you are not being punished. And so that frees us from having to worry as if we've somehow wronged God and incurred his wrath upon us because if you are in Christ, you do not experience punishment. And in many ways, the suffering we experience is no longer punitive It is now redemptive, so that Christ has redeemed suffering. If we go to Romans 8, 28 through 29, I think this beautifully illustrates in many ways how suffering has been redeemed. Verse 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And so the purpose of God in your life, if you are in Christ, is to form you into the image of Jesus so that through you, God is glorified. And so through you, people see God and turn to him as well and begin that journey of being transformed into Jesus as well. In the last four months of marriage, I have experienced incredible joy, incredible excitement, but it's also been really, really challenging. There have been moments where it's been really, really hard. I don't know why this happens, but we'll be having a great time, and then she'll look at me. I'll be like, why did you look at me like that? What are you doing? Stop it. And in many ways, it's, as we live in such close quarters, although it seems like we're struggling through things, the truth is that in Christ God is using these struggles to form us into the image of Jesus. And so rather than seeing my wife as my enemy, my wife is now a tool by which God is making me look more like him. In many ways, too, I feel like I might have been like Jeremiah and that I had set my hope on Kenzie as if she was the one who would make me happy, as if she was the one who would fulfill all my hopes and all my dreams and give me life everlasting. And the truth is, that's not her burden. That's not her calling. For me to place that on her is to put her into a role she was never meant to fill. And so in those moments, Jesus reminds me that she was never meant to be my hope. Jesus is my hope. Another example, as I mentioned earlier, my brother was born with Down syndrome when I was in fifth grade. And in many ways, when he was born, that was a world-shattering event for our family. And I must say, there's been so much joy through seeing him grow, but there's been a lot of pain and a lot of struggle and a lot of hardship. I liken it to packing your bags and getting planned to go on a trip to the Caribbean, only when you get off the plane and find out you're in Russia. There's nothing that can prepare you for that moment. And so as, as I was preparing for the sermon, I wanted to talk to my parents because in many ways, I believe that my parents are being transformed into the image of Jesus through the experience of raising my brother. So I just want to share with you what my mom and dad said as I talked with them. My mom, she wrote, what allows me to be open to transformation is that I choose to trust God, not question him. And I believe and trust what he has said in his word. 
Romans 8, 16 through 18 says that as a child of God, fellow heir with Christ, we suffer or have trials because Jesus did, but we also get to share in his glory. Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that is where I choose to hang my coat every day. She also writes Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then she asks, How am I being transformed to be more like Jesus? I cannot separate being a witness for Christ and being a parent of a child with Down syndrome. God has called me to be salt and light to my Down syndrome community, and that gives me strength to endure the journey with Daniel. So in many ways, my mom's experience, as she's being transformed into the image of Jesus, she becomes Christ to those in need. And so she has gotten to this point where she cannot separate her identity with Christ apart from her identity of being a parent of a child with Down syndrome. God has so used it to form her and to shape her, and God has so used it to shape our entire family. My dad, the day when Daniel was born, he said the passage that came to mind was, let this cup pass from me, which is what Jesus spoke the night before he faced the cross. So my dad, he wrote, I remember thinking that on the way home from the hospital the day Daniel was born, this is too hard for me, I can't do it. Let this cup pass from me. As with Christ, who also asked for the cup to pass from him, it didn't. We are given things that are really, really hard, and we have no idea how to deal with them. So for me, the comfort is that Christ has been through exactly what I have to go through. So that no matter how hard it is and how much we have to sacrifice our own wishes and desires and lives, Christ already did that for us. And in an odd way, it's kind of an analogy of what Christ does for us. Julie and I have really had to give up our lives for Daniel. He has changed things dramatically. It's an honor to be able to do it, but as you well know, it can often be a frustrating and thankless task. So as my parents are being formed more into the image of Jesus through their experience of raising a child with Down syndrome, I think there's a few things I've seen is that one, that Christ as their hope allows them to get through it. And also knowing that Jesus is transforming them into his own image gives them the strength to endure. And so they, rather than running away from the situation, they enter into it. And in many ways, I think this message stands in direct opposition to the God of Orange County. And I see the God of Orange County as one who promotes your highest goal or your highest gain as being comfortable and living an easy, stress-free, pain-free life. And so we buy into this, and so we look for the newest app for our Macintosh, Apple, iPhones, and iPads that will somehow make our lives a little bit more efficient. And we hire people to clean our houses for us and to mow our lawns because, well, we don't have the time to do that, and it makes things a little bit easier. And we look for the fastest and quickest way to make the most money possible. And we give money to charity if we do it all, because we don't have the time to give to charity, and writing a check is a lot easier than giving your time. It's one thing to give money to an orphanage, but it's a whole other thing to adopt an orphan and raise it as your own child. And we may not like our husband or wife, so we can just get rid of them and get a new one. And we want to have a great time. We want to enjoy this life. But man, that gets hard. It gets stressful. So we turn to alcohol or drugs to give us a better high or a better hit. And we often, rather than 
looking to our wives or husbands to satisfy us, we'll turn to the computer because it's really easy. makes it simple. And the truth is that God is forming you, if you are in Christ, into the image of Christ, not trying to make you comfortable and live an easy life. And so we need to move away from this idea that we need to get away from what's hard and pursue what's easy. It's often those things that are really challenging that God will use to transform you. And so when we run from situations that are challenging, we run from opportunities to be transformed into Christ. And we run from opportunities to be Christ to this broken world. My encouragement for us is that we would be like dancers who are so fixated on Jesus that no matter how crazy, how dizzy, how chaotic life gets, that we are so focused on him and that he is good and he is working good in our lives. So as you go from here and as you go into your life, as you maybe experience a world-shattering event or maybe in the midst of one, I want to give you a few questions to ask yourself that might help you see God in the midst of this. So here's some questions. Do I have a hope other than Jesus? How might God be lovingly redirecting my gaze towards him? In what areas do I feel challenged or stretched? What might this situation require of me? And the reason I ask those questions is because if you find yourself needing more patience, it's probably that God is trying to produce more patience within you. And finally, how can God use this situation to transform me into the image of Christ. One last thing. If you are in Christ, if you have given yourself to Jesus in faith repentance, if you've surrendered your life, you are no longer under the wrath of God. Whatever is happening in your life, you are not being punished. In fact, God is using these things to transform you into the image of Jesus. And you will one day experience eternal blissful communion with God. But the other part of that is if you have not given yourself to Jesus, I don't take joy in saying this, but the truth is when you come to face death, your wrath has not been satisfied and your sin still hangs on you. And God loved you so much that he stepped in to provide a way out in Jesus. And so I just lovingly invite you to turn towards Jesus. Following Jesus, I think, is the greatest decision I've ever made. Yes, it's been hard, but God uses everything for good and is transforming me into the image of Jesus. And so if you have not given yourself to Jesus, I just want to invite you to do that. We're going to end a little bit differently. Rather than pray us out, I want to have a moment of silence because I don't think we get enough silence in our lives. So we'll take a few moments and just use this time to talk to Jesus, to If you want to recommit yourself to him, to just remind him that you want him to be your hope. And if you want to give yourself to Jesus, I invite you to do that during this time now. I'm not going to give you words to say if you want that to happen, let it be the cry of your own heart. So if we just bow our heads and close our eyes and just enter into a period of silence.
as you continue to worship silently, I just want to read this over you. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him.